0: your people that you chose us that you showed us who you were and then embraced us sent your son to take away our sins and then lifted us up to you we we ask as we open up your word today that you open it up to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word in the name of your son jesus christ we ask these things amen now studying through The letter of the first Corinthians has given me personally a lot of good opportunities to reflect and specifically to reflect on the kind of difficulties that Paul must have had when he was establishing the early churches. Because we, we get to have an idea with us of what a church is supposed to be like. Usually it's something of an overly perfect ideal in our heads, a a neat little building filled with neat little people who are all kindness and virtue from head to toe rather than the varied and often flawed beasts we know ourselves to be. But Paul's churches did not have that ideal. The church had never been done before. This was all new to them. This kind of radical trust of one another, the living life in tandem with the community in this way under God, with a lasting expectation that the authorities would disapprove and may punish and kill you for that, that was new. But they had an assurance that the message that they were given was worth dying for, and this was a new thing. And the Corinthian people needed a lot of help in becoming a church, as we've seen over the last several weeks. Many of the issues that Paul addresses in his letter, the ones that we've already been over, are matters of practice and morality. We have a a case of a man carrying on an affair with his mother-in-law, a divided celebrity-centered loyalty to certain church leaders, matter of head coverings on women in church or not, of bringing one's own food to communion or not, of food sacrificed to idols or not. Most of these objections from Paul are things that they are doing which are not consistent with things they believe or the things that they say they believe. In addition to being sins, he's concerned these behaviors might damage the church's capacity to teach what they hold to be true. In essence, it's how their behavior can distort their theology how their behavior can distort their theology. But here in chapter 15, we have a new objection, a church with a misunderstood teaching of the resurrection of the dead, something that doesn't have, initially, at least as far as we can see, a direct impact on the way people live their lives. But they wonder, will people really be resurrected from the dead? Is that a real event? Will we have bodies? Is it a metaphor? And Paul's fear in this chapter is that without a clear teaching on this point, without the right theology, that the life they live as a result will not be the kind of life that God desires. That a faulty idea of resurrection cannot support the demands that a gospel puts on people. In essence, it's how their theology can distort their behavior. How living wrong can come from believing the wrong things. And This relationship between how we act in our lives, how we live and what we believe can't be divided. It's, it's a bound-together thing. And it warns us implicitly against being a church that values behavior absolutely over theology or theology absolutely over behavior. A church that fixates on theology, on the, the abstract things, but has no sense of a, of a behavioral accountability among its parts, among its people. They'll find that people's lives and their actions... And the everyday decisions pull them in directions that are incompatible with the church's teaching. And the church that worries entirely about practical things, about how you act, but wants the, the preacher to skip the, the dull, fluffy theological stuff and just get to that application, they'll, they'll find that people cannot help but live in accordance to what they believe, even if they don't talk about it. And they cannot apply a new teaching unless their understanding of it is clear. So these two things are bound together. And in the case of this chapter, Paul's fear is that a church that does not really believe in the resurrection to eternal life cannot be expected to risk their mortal lives against the perils of a world that hates them. Because riches stored up in heaven are no better to a dead man than those who are uh, storing up riches on earth. And if they keep on trucking with this muddy idea of the resurrection, if they're not sure it's a real thing, it seems like it may only be a matter of time until they begin to lose the will to live their lives for anyone except themselves. Now, it is a very big chapter, which is why I chickened out and I had Liam read only a few verses, rather than the whole slab of it like I usually do tonight. But I'm gonna go through the whole thing step by step, so we won't miss any of it. There are three big portions in this chapter. Three parts of Paul's address on the same topic. His first is a, is a recap of the gospel with a focus on the resurrection of Christ, Christ being raised from the dead. Then there's a question of whether or not the resurrection from the dead, that is, at the end of days when everyone is raised, if that's true, what can be genuinely expected of it? And finally, then a question of what that will be like, particularly about the kind of body that a person will have in the resurrected life. And all of this moves Paul's thoughts along in one direction, and the summary will look like this. Christ was raised up from the dead. This gives us assurance that we will be raised up from the dead because we follow him. And that that resurrected life has to be something like the life we know now, but repaired, imperishable, and better. And therefore we can be bold to live and to sacrifice in this life today. Christ was raised, we'll all be raised and we can live today in light of that assurance. That's what this chapter boils down to. Now a quick note on terms before we go stepping through this passage. It's good to note the ones that get repeated over and over when we jump into a passage. The key words for this passage are the terms raised and resurrected. We tend to use them interchangeably. Paul has a slightly subtle uh, or slightly different meaning for the ways he uses them here. We, we use them interchangeably in our discussion of things and we know what we mean when we say them. We say Christ was resurrected and that we will be raised up from the dead. But it's useful to note how here Paul uses them in a particular way. To be raised up from the dead, as Paul's talking about, is that action of God returning a person to life with all the implied replacement and upholstery of their body that is required. God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised Lazarus from the dead, etc., etc. But Paul uses the term the resurrection of the dead to mean the, the en masse event at the end of time the end of days the resurrection of the dead as the occasion when God will raise everyone up from the dead to be raised up from the dead is to be taken out of that category you are taken out of the dead but the resurrection of the dead is the prophesied time when God empties out the earth and the sea of the dead entirely robbing death of all of its power and completely undoing the effects of death on mankind and that way everyone stands judged before him So, let's get through it. We'll recap with verses 1 to 11. They go like this. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. For by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, that this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So Paul brackets the core events of the crucifixion as the heart of the gospel. He says, this is what we taught them, this is what we taught you. And that, and that even he, as the late comer to the party of apostles, he preaches the same message as the other 12. It's a consistent message. There's really no give in this area. That is the only grace. It's under the grace of God that through this message that has taken him from one persecuting the church to one being persecuted for the church, that's the only gospel by which one can be saved. And it's how he taught them it. And that failing to believe that message is, as we said in verse 2, to have believed in vain. A fairly scary line. Now this is Paul establishing the theological baseline for the rest of what he's talking about in the chapter. Christ died, according to scripture, and rose again, according to scripture. And in the case of first century churches that need proof, hundreds of people saw him both die and then show up alive not long after. They had eyewitness reports of the death and the resurrection. And he mentions them for people's perusal here. We ourselves have the eyewitness accounts accrued for us in the Gospels to assure us. But Paul carries on from this this place with his main point of concern, the opening of the portion of the chapter that comes next, which is about the resurrection of the dead, what the church was really struggling with. And it's a concern of his that looks like this. If church folks don't really believe there will be a resurrection of the dead at the end, if they don't believe they will be raised up to eternal life, then they surely can't much really believe that Jesus was raised up from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised up, then what's the whole point of this exercise anyway? Verses 12 to 19 say as much. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if even the Son of God can't escape the clutches of death, then death is more powerful than God. In which case it makes sense to live in fear of death rather than in fear of God. Note that final line there, that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Paul's writing in an environment that to confess Christ as king can at best cause you to be socially cast out and ostracized and at worst can get you nailed to a cross of your own. And if Christ really is king, that's a painful sacrifice, but worthwhile for the sake of him who sacrificed for us. But if Christ isn't king, if death is king, then that's a terrible deal. Most of us have a list of things we'd be willing to die for, a list of people we'd be willing to die for. We'd like to think we'd step in front of a bullet for our family and our friends, but not for a story that wasn't even real. That would just be a bad deal, and we know it because death is so awful, and we know how it wrecks our lives whenever we come close to it. Death drives us crazy. When we lose people we love, when we lose people we love to death, we're left with these emotional connections in our hearts that don't lead anywhere anymore. We don't have the mental hardware to deal with that. Now, for a a somewhat flippant example, I'm, I'm a fan of the Batman franchise. I've made no secret of that. One of my controversial theological opinions. And the best Batman movie to date was The Dark Knight in 2008, and I went nuts for that movie. It was everything I wanted that movie to be, and Heath Ledger famously played a very disturbed and very disturbing Joker, and then infamously died of a drug overdose shortly before the film's screening. And the film ends with Batman having foiled the Joker's plan, spoiler alert, and the Joker taking this event with his trademark evil humor and remarking, I think you and I are destined to do this forever. A nod to the way that these characters have been going back and forth in thousands of stories people have written, but... Having that line in the movie under those circumstances made it somewhat bittersweet. Obviously, if they were going to be doing this forever, they'd have to do it with different actors. And I tell this story because when I think of that movie and how much I liked it, I still sometimes catch myself thinking the irrational thought process is there some way we can get around the fact that Heath Ledger is dead to make another one? Now obviously that's an irrational thought, and I don't want some kind of weak-ended Bernie's solution or an animated Heath Ledger for the sake of this, but it, it, I just have this mental bridge there that sort of leads nowhere now. It started at, I sure like this movie, and it used to lead to, I hope they make another one like it. And my brain keeps going down that path only to remember the road is closed because the bridge has collapsed. And there will never be another one like that with the same actors. Now that's just a silly example, of course, but none of us who have ever lost anyone close to us are unfamiliar with the kind of broken bridges that I'm talking about here. We visit their graves as if they are there. We talk to them knowing full well they can't hear, but because we have to. Rene Rivkin, if you remember him, a late Australian investor, insider, insider, trader, and uh, insufferably smug atheist, um, recorded an interview before his death in 2005. And I remember watching it on on TV when it came through, and he he was dying at the time, and he blithely remarked that he had informed his children not to waste money on a funeral for him, and just to stuff what remained of him in a cardboard box to have him burned, because all this... Afterlife and funeral business was superstitious nonsense anyway. And in saying so, he completely missed the point of a funeral. It's not for the dead, it's for the living who are left behind. And, and whether or not you're an atheist or a believer, any spiritual aspect to death is long dealt with before you get to the service. A funeral is the psychological process for the living because we don't have the mental hardware to deal with death. And that's the best way we've figured out how to cope. And if this really is all there is, a short life and an unfortunate death and cardboard boxes, if we will never again see the dead that we've lost, then the best we can do is cling to our loved ones now and live for the moment and tell ourselves the lie every day that who we are is too big or too important to one day be stuffed in a cardboard box of our own. But, verses 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God, The Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not mean God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. What an assurance we have that even death will be destroyed and that our instinct that starts inside us that tells us that death is unnatural and horrible is right and one day it will be put right. We worship the Lord who was sent as a man to become not just Lord over man, but to die and then become Lord over death. Not just Lord over the living, but pouring life even into the dead and having lordship there too, so that no corner of creation is too far from the mercy of God, and that then God really is all in all. Praise God. Now, it wouldn't be a chapter of Corinthians If we didn't have an interesting thing, we had to uh, carefully, forensically explain. So what comes next has historically been a little bit confusing. They talk about the baptism for the dead. So let's look at that, shall we? Just for a laugh. Now, if there is no resurrection, starting at verse 29, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I face every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about, I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? And if the death are not, dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled; bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. So what are we talking about here? What is baptism for the dead? Well, there are some cults like the Mormons, some other groups who take this verse, and then in addition to that, they have the erroneous idea that baptism is the act that sort of physically washes away sins, and then they perform their own baptism for the dead, in which a family member is baptized on behalf of a dead relative who was not themselves baptized. Kind of a way to sneak people into eternity. Something akin to signing your spouse's name on a cheque. That doesn't seem quite right. God should not be so easily fooled. And in the Middle Ages, there was a similar practice, which I find kind of hilarious. Um, in In some places where deathbed baptisms were all the rage, because folks had acquired this superstition, this this weird notion that baptism was the thing that actually washed away all your sins. But not the sins you'd commit after baptism, only the early stuff, and you'd have to pay the difference in purgatory after you died. So then it became a, a challenge to sort of game the system. The closer to death you could make your baptism, the less time you'd have to spend in remedial spiritual torment. Now the problem with this, aside from the fact that it's not true and not biblical, is that occasionally you'd get a noble who was too clever by half and was dying on his deathbed, and he'd call for the priest, and the priest would race to his bed, cyber get caught in traffic. And by the time he got there, then the duke of wherever was actually dead and unbaptized, for that matter. Whoops. Now he's going to hell on a technicality. So what they would do in this situation, what some folks would do is they would have someone, a servant maybe, crawl under the bed... And then they'd perform the baptism on the body with the guy under the bed doing the responses as kind of almost a ventriloquist (laughs) situation. Do you, Duke of wherever, believe Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Yep. Yep, definitely. Do you vow to follow him wherever he may lead? Yeah, 100%. Seems legit to me. This is obviously false superstition. It leads to the idea that God is either kind of a short-sighted old man who uh, largely observes baptisms by squinting down from above and then listening in, and as long as he hears someone say the words, he goes, ah, that sounds about right. <laughs> or you have a, maybe some kind of an angelic flight attendant situation where you have, to, you have to charm them into opening the boarding ramp again when you get to the gate too late. But we have no historical evidence for the ancient churches doing anything like this. It seems peculiar to the middle Age church in Europe. But based on the fact that Paul goes on about the talk, he talks later in this short segment about living under threat himself, about living in danger, about having to fight wild beasts in Ephesus, hypothetically, as if he was being thrown to the lions in the style of uh, pagan and Roman torments. He's talking about the threat of death, and this seems likely to be the root of what he's talking about when he says baptism for the dead. In this case, we'd be talking about Baptism for those who are about to die, that is, about to go among the dead. As you might get dressed up for your wedding, baptism for the dead as the place you're going. That is, baptism for the dead is baptism for those who are expected to be among the dead. So Paul's question here is, not, is, is more in the way of, if there is no resurrection, why do we bother with a symbol of resurrection for the guy who is about to die and then not be resurrected? it doesn't profit anyone and if death was the end then the appropriate reaction really would be let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die but if there is life after death then baptism is not the act that saves but it is meaningful it is meaningful that we are baptized and it will remain meaningful after we are raised again we are commanded in fact to be baptized and so our obedience to Christ's commands Matter, because we'll live forever. And Paul finishes that section with a warning to turn from bad teaching and from bad teachers because some people have been so badly misled about this topic they don't really even know God. A harsh warning. And that little note there, bad company corrupts bad character, incidentally, it's a quote, not from scripture, but from, the, from the Greek poet Menander, who's the same guy who coined phrases like to call a spade a spade, And he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. A culturally relevant touchstone at the time and the reason that young preachers feel comfortable using Batman in their own examples today. (laughs) Finally, we come to the third part of the chapter, Paul's discussion about the body of a believer who is resurrected and what they can expect. Now this is a long segment, verses 35 through 57, but the scripture here is particularly clear. and and particularly plain. And when the scripture speaks very plainly uh, to us about itself, then far be it from me to get in the way. So let me read this as we near the end of the passage. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed. Perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. As to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another. And fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind. And the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon another. And the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that was the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man of heaven. As, there was, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven." And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, the flesh, cannot in- flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will become true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be resurrected into a near likeness of Jesus Christ, exchanging a perishable body, one that can suffer and fade and pass away, for one that lasts forever. It's different because it's made from a different substance, although we will be the same in it. When God made Adam, he breathed life into clay. And in a sense, the inheritors of that physical nature, the rest of us, we and and even Jesus when he was among us for the first time, clearly had this kind of earthly nature to our bodies. But when Christ was raised from the dead, the disciples did not find an empty tomb strewn with shreds of burial cloth as if he had torn his way out of what they wrapped him in. They found the cloth where they had left it, sunken in on itself as if the body had turned to nothing because it had, and the new body of Christ was better, more glorious, and a preview of the kind of imperishable upgrade that we can expect. Now, this has interesting follow-on ideas that we don't really have time to chase tonight, like the fact that Christ's resurrected body empowered him to walk through walls, and and how some of his followers did not recognize him when they first saw him until he pointed that out to them. And the fact that in in a hypothetical garden of Eden where Adam didn't sin... Jesus would still have had a reason to come to promise Adam an upgrade to this eternal body, a change from an earthly nature to a heavenly one. Worth thinking about. But what's important here is what Paul is trying to drive home, that this is a church reeling with questions about the life to come and if it's really worth the cost of following Christ in the life they presently live. And the truth is, if there is no life after death, it's probably not worth it. This is why churches with a weak theology who leave doctrinal matters, who leave theology stuff like resurrection and afterlife as fluffy teaching with no real practical impact, things we don't need to talk about, we find that members of those churches will drift towards living their lives however they like, eating and drinking because tomorrow they will die. And for that matter, churches who prize theology only And don't concern themselves with the activities and actions of their members. We'll find that in, in a culture that screams to them to live while they're alive. And get all living done they can. That their members will struggle to believe what they're being taught. But if we can learn from scripture that there is a resurrection from the dead. We are raised up from the dead. And if we commit to encouraging one another to living the kind of life right now that we're going to live forever then nothing in this temporary life can move us. And we can devote ourselves utterly to the service of Jesus and the saving gospel of his grace. And Paul says as much in his closing verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Praise God that he has sent his son to rise from the dead so that we can know that our labor in him is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father God, we live in a world that is horrified by death when it's not in denial of it. And we have the assurance that death is just the last of your enemies to be put under your feet. We praise you for the way that you've set us free, both from fear of our own death and with an assurance of life eternal with you, and from so much of the pain of losing loved ones whom we long to see again in your coming kingdom. We know that we do not believe in vain, so help us live like we believe it, May the world look at us, your children, and know that we have an assurance of a life that does not end, that goes on free from sin, free from pain, and available to all those who would call your son their Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.